Whoa, recording in progress. Already going, yep. How's it going, man? Not too bad. I'm still at work. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's been a long day, but everybody's gone. The whole place is empty until the night crew gets here in two hours. Nice. Yeah. Very good. And uh, yeah, I like to just jump right into it. It's a podcast style format, so we can talk about anything. You can ask me questions. We can go back and forth. Um, I like to think of it not as an interview because that gets too uh, segmented and, you know, question and answer type thing. Understood. I'm sure we got plenty we can cover today. So we met on um, turn seven at Blackhawk, right? Yep. That was, I believe, my first track marshal corner working weekend as a flag marshal um, at Blackhawk Farms Raceway is at South Beloit, Illinois. And uh, this is the EricSwanRacing.com podcast, I believe, episode number 129. We got Jim Probst today. So thanks for coming on, talking to me for about an hour or two today. My pleasure. Been looking forward to it. So, yeah, we met a year and a half, two years ago now, back in May of 20, was it? Um, Yeah, you would have to tell me. I don't have a memory (laughs) for that stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, But uh, that was my first weekend, and you showed me the ropes. I was with Jack for the early part of the day. He was showing me around. He's a veteran of of the scene over there at Blackhawk and many places he goes. But um, yeah, we were just over there and he was he took me through every single corner of the track and uh, where there was a marshal post and said, this is what you need to look out for. There's deer over there. Keep an eye out for that. Um, when they crash, they're going to land over here type of thing. So um, it was very helpful. And then, you know, with your help too, standing next to you all day and running out, picking up bikes, uh, that was pretty eventful. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love turn seven there. Um I don't work anything else anymore. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, you can see the incidents getting prepared to happen in that corner. Sometimes you're in a corner and just you know, but uh, because of the kink that leads in there, uh, it's a lot of fun and it's an operational corner. You know, you you're feeding control with a bunch of information and then you're helping the starter find the leaders. Uh, it's just a fun corner to work. And it's the last corner coming onto a main straightaway. So everybody's trying to push for that drive out of the corner. Everybody's trying to get one more position to, uh, before they cross that line. So it causes incidents. You know, that was the first, um, well, obviously, like I said, it was a fir- my first event as a marshal, but the first person I responded to didn't get up right away. I was like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to give it a couple seconds. They usually pop up though. And, uh, Turn seven's got a nice little runoff area, a nice little crash area, nice and soft landings typically. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun working with you. I learned a lot about you and um, all the businesses you've been in and and your own racing, uh, your time on the track and stuff. And it kind of mirrored a little bit of what I did in my youth. We went in different paths after that, but uh, um, Groton was one of my favorite places to ride at and uh, I know you've got a lot of time out there. When I, I for this uh, podcast, um, I brought my briefcase of some old stuff, and I don't know if you can see this very well. But oh, nice! Yeah, beautiful Granton Raceway over in uh, yeah. Belding, Michigan. Yeah, I have to think it's like '92 or something because the garages are there, and um, 
so yeah, it was a lot of fun getting to meet you and and I love getting the the newbies, but more what I like more so than that even is a racer that has never worked corners before. Yeah. Uh, so and seeing their reaction to it's not just some person standing out here or sitting in a lawn chair or whatever they uh perceive what's going on out there. It's actually a pretty serious operation. We keep the the wheels of the event turning, you know, that's our job is to keep the cadence rolling. And um I like seeing those reactions from the racers that come out. Yeah, it's uh it's something I think should be almost mandatory to do um some marshalling if to get your race license or to keep your race license. Uh, now you can't do it every weekend. Most people want to be on the bike and racing or riding at a track days or events, but um, you get so much of a different perspective. You see different lines that the fast guys are taking. You see the lines that the slow guys are taking. You see things to avoid um, certain crash situations. Like in turn seven, we saw um, a guy get into the back of another rider and they both went down. So like, that's something you want to avoid, obviously, but um, you just you can't get that close up and personal unless you're actually doing this job. And, you know, I don't like to meet the riders after they crash, but it is a unique thing that you get to do um, and then see them in the pit lane later. Like, hey, man, you remember me? I was the guy who helped push you out of the weeds in uh, turn seven a couple of races ago. He's like, oh, thank you so much. You know, giving you high fives and all that. It's a cool, cool thing to do. Yeah, I take it a little bit further, too. Of course, I do check in on uh, riders that have an incident in my corner, but also if they do something really cool, yeah. like the best pass of the weekend, you know, it turns <laughs> like you say, you're trying to get, you know, uh, a really good drive out of there. And especially with back markers uh, near the end of the race, if you're catching a back marker in seven, you're doing everything you can to get in front of them before the apex. So I'll actually track that person down and I'll say, Hey man, that was the best pass of the day. I can't believe it. Thanks for the entertainment. You know, for sure. It's uh, it's something I think the general public should be more aware about. So it's kind of why I wanted to talk to you and get your opinion on things. How do you think we get more people to the racetrack? Uh, it's an age old thing really. Um, and it, it does take a special someone to really enjoy it and uh, to spend your own money to do it, you know. So I, I really enjoy it. And I can even do a track day because, um, for one thing, I'm not there for the money necessarily. I want my expenses taken care of. And I think uh, I've got a lot to say about that, too. But um, it takes a special someone that can turn a track day of of uh, you know two or three classes that are just put you to sleep boring <laughs> and really try to make it interesting you know because then i start i don't know if i did it with you but when i'm training somebody i i tell them you know look at the action of the rider of the first one of the third one uh when their fingers come off the front brake and roll on and that sort of thing which then makes you take a look at the rest of the bike and if it's got something hanging off or whatever, that's when you spot those things. And, and then that makes it interesting and it makes it fun even. Uh, but some people uh, don't have that, uh, you know, interest in it uh, to make it fun. So to answer your question, 
really is something like we do have going at Blackhawk. Doesn't happen everywhere, but we've got a good solid crew of, uh, you know, 10 regular, smart uh, enthusiasts, um, you know, race enthusiasts that really get into it. So we've been able to build a little team, especially over the last uh, three years or so, um, of leaders in the group. And uh, um, and I think our training uh, is, is done pretty well, comparatively speaking. Um, so that if you train somebody well and they have a really good time doing it, they're likely to come back and do it again. So the social side of it's a big deal, you know. It's huge, Saturday, yeah. Saturday night, having dinner together, dancing and throwing a few back, you know, it's it's a really big part of the deal. You're with all these like-minded, wonderful people, you know. Yeah, and I think when we went, uh, we all went out to dinner, and uh, we actually went to Wisconsin. We crossed state lines and went to another state and had dinner and came back, and it was like 10 minutes away. Right. Yeah, you uh, fart in the wrong direction in turn one. You're, you're in Wisconsin. That's that's a cool part of it, for sure. Yeah, yeah and uh, I, uh, I got hooked up with Jess and uh, hung out with Jess the last time I was there a couple months ago, and she's a really cool girl. She's got her own like hair salon that she does and uh, she works race control sometimes. So there's a lot of different positions you can do at the racetrack. It's not just being at the corner. Like um, for you, you're a flag marshal. You don't go run out and pick, pick up bikes, but the young kids are uh, typically stuck on that, uh, that runner position going out on the hot track sometimes, which is a little scary sometimes, but for the most part, as long as it's covered with the yellow um, racers have some respect Although, um, when I was out there in the, in the, uh, the crash zone on the exit of one of the corners, um, the last time there was another bike who ran off under a waving yellow. I was like, Hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. You gotta be watching out. So you gotta watch your back at all times. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing of it too. You know, you're, you're really not allowed to pass from the waving yellow to the incident. And how do you really expect a, a corner marshal that's waving and concerned about this incident that they're having to also keep track of someone that's passing through there, you know? Right. So, uh, I think I I try to really keep that kind of stuff in mind. Uh, but, yeah, Jess uh, is a great uh, part of the team, a leader for sure. Um, she's just 100% by the book when yeah. she's on the <laughs> You know, it's like there's no deviation from the book when she's working the corner and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because it it really shows you that there's someone who's thoroughly enjoying themselves doing what they're doing. And her race control, her uh, track day control stuff is is the same way. She's when she's on control, it's step by step by step. And um, and that's that's a good quality of hers for sure. We, we really do rich and uh and brad um and um a couple other really strong people on our team that so when you were asking how do you get more people to the race there are a lot of great ideas for that you know uh, uh with this uh age of communication that we have now with social media and whatnot i would think that we would be able to get with the uh the different clubs around uh whether it's uh uh 
street road racing crew or, um, you know, something along those lines, uh, that kind of communication might get some new blood out there. And, um, you know, that's just not me anymore. I've got the uh, full-time career and um, have been there before, like for a lot of years, recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. And um, I count on uh, other people to do that. And it's changed from the way it used to be. So, And I think um, maybe a myth about corner working is you have to go through some extensive training and it's a really hard course to pass a test to become one. But um, really, it was like an afternoon or early the morning with Jack. And then he's like, all right, go out with Jim and he'll show you the rest of the ropes. But this is basically it. And you like I maybe have uh, more experience than the next person who doesn't have any racing experience. So it's maybe easier for me to pick up. But really, it's just, uh, you know, watch your back. Watch out for your your coworkers backs and fronts. Um you know, stay safe at all times. Cause you can't help somebody else if you're going to get injured yourself. Um, and then make sure you're waving the right flags. And what was interesting for me to learn was I've now worked for, I think 14 organizations, um, as a marshal. And it's very different. It's very different from, from organization to organization. Um, they all have specific flagging. They're all different. I mean, it might be like the, the difference between one waving yellow versus two waving yellow. So it's not completely different. It's, it's similar, but it's like, okay, which, which one am I at now? And what are the rules today? Yep. Trust me, man. You are, uh, uh, so there's a couple things going on there. Of course, um, uh, things have definitely changed over the years. Most road racing corner working for motorcycles came out of an SCCA uh, playbook and it evolved over time. Um, and every once in a while, a, a regional road race organization will change their medical flag procedure. But more so than anything, than a, from organization to organization, it's racetrack to racetrack because typically you have the local race control person that is operating the event with the local team so what we get a little frustrated with as a as a a team that's there all the time operating different events is when you do get a different control person uh they want things done a different way but your crew you know are the ones that really operate it for you, you know, because they're the locals. They do it every event. They know how to clear a racetrack. Uh, they know when to shut up most of the time. <laughs> and uh, and not to add anything, you know, not to joke around, all that stuff. So um, you are preaching to the choir there, though. I really don't understand how we are at, Let's say uh, in this country anyway, uh, since 1970, road racing, uh, that we all do it so much different when it comes to rules and regs and, and that sort of thing. I would, it would be nice to be more standardized, but what I've learned is like even when I'm trying to work different events, they're not all 
um, organized by the same organizers or the same racetracks or the same people. It's like, who the hell do I call to do this one? Um, because I, I haven't gone the route of just doing one track. I've traveled the country a little bit, going to all these sort of different events. So it's like, okay, do I call the organizer? Do I call the racetrack? Is it somebody else in the, in the gray area who's like, happens to be in control of this Marshall team for this event. So, and each racetrack is its own unique company. So every racetrack is different than how they operate. Can you camp there? What, what are their gate hours? Like, it's like, um, even me being around the the sport for a decade, it's like I'm still confused sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is the way it is, and there is absolutely no change in that. Uh, um, that's part of the fun too, you know. Uh, when I finally started going to Daytona on a regular basis, uh, I learned to really uh, appreciate that very thing, you know, on, on how different places operate and. Um, I operated as the operations director. I operated Gateway International for four years uh, from the big NASCAR events to uh, running the club events on the infield in a full-time drag program. Um, so that's a three-track three facility then? Well, it's, uh, it's a drag strip, a quarter-mile drag strip uh, that runs alongside our oval uh, so uh, Gateway is a Roval and has been since uh, uh, 96, I think, when they built on top of the old facility, this new facility. Uh, I got started there after it opened, but um, yeah, um, it's just different from each track to each track. And you have locals that operate those events for the incoming organization and you can imagine, I was just thinking about the Arma thing, you know, because they lost their race director and, and she had only been doing it for a year. And here's an organization that uh, even their big players, their race directors, their race control people and whatnot, they're volunteers. They get like 350 bucks for the weekend or some absurd low dollar amount while these people have their RVs and they travel from event to event. And uh, and as you can well imagine, it's not just showing up at the event and let's get this event started. They got to plan months and months in advance and talking to each different racetrack, each different control person. Do you have a control staff or a corner staff ready? And uh, do you have the number that we asked for? And uh, and there again, you know, Arma is for us. Arma is different than CCS is. Uh, and how they want their flagging done and their priorities of uh, operating the event and stuff. So you can imagine that kind of a person. And uh, so ARMA also is not owned by anybody. You know, it's a club. So to some degree, they rule by committee where CCS and WIRA, you know, has ownership. And so they make decisions and you don't have to wait for months for things to happen. And they tend to retain their employees because they pay them to uh, be on the staff, you know, so it's a different animal and um glad I'm not in the politics of that bullshit anymore. Yeah, it's uh it's tough though. Uh we could talk about the pay if you want because yeah, like me traveling to Florida or Texas or Georgia, Alabama, I live in Michigan right now. So it's like 
am I stupid for doing this when I'm getting paid like a hundred, maybe $135 max for per right. day of pay when it caught my flights a couple hundred dollars. Like I don't usually ever get a hotel unless it's snowing. So I just bring a, I bring one backpack. No, no. Uh, what do you call it? I just do carry on. I don't store any luggage on the plane. I, I walk from most airports to the racetrack if it's feasibly possible because uh, I don't want to get an Uber and pay 40 bucks for a, a you know a 20 mile drive. So I'm doing it like the bare bones, the minimum thing possible, uh, least expense is as pot so I can make money or at least break even. And like going down to Daytona, it's an awesome thing. I love to do it, but uh, I don't make money at the end of the day. I, I'm happy if I break even. And then I'm not making money like working a normal job. I have to take time off of work. And luckily, I own a business that still sells products, you know, if I'm sleeping, um, which is kind of how I, it helps me do it. But yeah, it's uh, I find most of the staff who does it is uh, is is. 50, 60 years old, you know, or, or older, because most young people like me, it's like they can't take that time off of work. They'll get fired or, um, you know, they just can't afford to do it in the first place. So it's like if you really want people to be marshals, you got to pay them more. And the thing is, like, I find crazy also. Only the amateur organizations pay, but the biggest organizations like Formula One, MotoGP, IndyCar do not pay. What the hell is that? They have the most amount of money and they're deciding not to pay their workers because they get 2000 people who apply for a 500 person, you know, crew. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of different thoughts on that too. Um, so uh, a lot of times, um, the racetrack is paying the corner marshals themselves, something outside of a pro race or whatever. Uh, so that's part of it. Um, I think uh, CCS at Blackhawk is like the exception there. They they pay more than uh, the racetrack does for to get their marshals out there. Um, and then when I think about the major races, uh, the really big ones, um, I would be okay with it's the expense part of it primarily is what kills us. So instead of maybe even instead of paying us, they do get a hotel. I know that there's going to be however many hundred people that show up for um, for Texas um, for a big event down there. But yeah, rent the whole damn thing out for the crew, you know, and at least take that burden off of those enthusiasts that are there because they're you know you have to admit. Uh, because you're a corner marshal at Coda during F1 and you're able to walk up and stand in the middle of the racetrack during the break, looking down into turn two, there's nothing cooler in this world than that. And I'd be willing to pay a couple bucks to do that. But uh, for me, I'm hauling my camper. I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm spending a whole lot of fuel, um, but if I could go down there knowing I had a room and, and I'd save myself $500 to go down there and work an event, um, it, but it's different at Blackhawk, you know, um, uh, they let me keep my camper there at the racetrack all year. I don't have to bring it back and forth. Um, and it does cover my expenses. The, 
it's a hundred or 120 a day, depending on how many hours you put in or whatever. But, um, there is that, um, never been treated better at a racetrack with better hospitality. That does remind me of something. Did you have a, a thing at the concession stand yourself where they were trying to charge you or something? Yeah, so uh, I'm broke as hell, so I always ask for a discount. You know, I'm saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm working here. I traveled, what what was it, six hours or something to be here today to work for you guys. And this guy at the counter is like, no, man, you don't work for us. You work for the organization. I'm like, I'm doing the same fucking job. What do you want from me? Like, you're, you're hassling me over, like, $4 muffin or something, like a bagel. I don't know what it was. I'm like, come on. Like, I got a discount yesterday. I got a discount at the last seven tracks I went to in the last couple of months. Like, and he did give me the discount. You're just trying to give me a hard time. I was like, why? What, what's the point? Yeah, and there you go. It's going to happen once in a while. You know, nowadays I can, you know, walk in the, the back door of the kitchen and grab a chair <laughs> and sit with those guys. And, you know, uh, during an event, all that event that you were at uh, where we had the, uh, the Red Flags, uh party auction, we stayed late, me and Brad and and uh, and Rich, and we threw away trash and we, you know, we did our part because we, of course, were welcome there anytime. I can go down there on a Monday and spend the day riding around or something. They just wave me by now, but um, so that's my thing when it comes to the pay and why I'm doing what I'm doing at Blackhawk now, even with all my corner working experience and racetrack operations and stuff it's it's a place where uh, i can call home it's beautiful uh, it has good people and i get to do what i want and so it's totally worth it for me to invest in a camper that'll stay out there when i need it uh, my wife now uh is working corners uh she's working 6a for me because we don't normally put somebody at 6a because okay, it's a yeah. blow the kink yeah, that the kink. And I kept complaining about that in seven because the first time a rider sees a flag for my situation in my corner is at the crossover at sixth. And they're like, well, if you really want somebody you're on there all the time and bring somebody, you know. <laughs> so I was like, honey, babe, you got to get into this for me and you got to be my flagger at 6A. But, you know, I mean, of course, she loves the place too. She now is friends with everybody that's there as much as I am. And uh, she's got her own scooter and stuff. So um, it's, it's just a really fun way to enjoy motorsports. So, and I'm not a knee dragger anymore. Done with it. It was fun while it lasted. You hung up the leathers, so to speak. They are, they have been hanging up since 97. Might have some dust on them now. No doubt about it. Got to, <laughs> Got to get some of that uh, leather treatment on there again and get them glossy and sell them. So tell me, um, let's go back in, in time a little bit. Tell me about your history with racing and riding and when did you get into the sport in the first place? Oh, well, that's uh, pretty much from the very beginning of life itself. Um, um, on my birthday, my mom would always, every year, would tell me how it all went. Yeah. <laughs> But then, you know, she would start off by saying, you know, a month before I was born, she was at Indianapolis Raceway Park because my dad was a SCCA racer. 
Um, and three of my brothers were there as well. And my oldest one had diarrhea and it was really cold and raining and how miserable she was being nine months pregnant. Um, so it, it started out pretty early for me. Um, like I say, the old man was running SECA cars, but he kind of quit shortly after I was born. There's kind of a downtime where there where he just bought a bunch of dirt bikes and uh, so I got started out uh, relatively young on a dirt bike. And, um, and then uh, my dad discovered motorcycle road racing. We had a different local track that's been long since closed uh, called Mid-America Raceways. And so I was a track brat. Um, grew up uh, being a terror at the racetrack uh, all through my youth. But I also worked everything. I'd work the front gate. I'd work hospitality. I did registration. And and as soon as back then, as soon as I was 15, I was able to step out of my own corner. And even if my dad wasn't racing or anything, he'd drop me off at the track. And I would take, he would drop me off at my corner and I would set up my tent and everything on my corner. And I did that for a long time until I could start racing. And uh, although, my racing was really short lived. My strong years were, were just a few. Um, I was always at the racetrack. Uh, we had a really strong local club called the MCRA and it started up in 74. And, um, and just recently in the last few years, hasn't been able to race because of our home track changes. Uh, but, uh, was president of that club and, you know, a few times and race director for their, you know, we had uh, as many as eight events a year, three different racetracks. And we took our show on the road. And, um, so operated all that stuff. Uh, and in between there being a big race fan, I've uh, done the Petit Le Mans 11 times and uh, the Daytona 24 hours, six times. And, uh, I'm a huge endurance car racing fan. I love IMSA and uh, Le Mans itself, of course, and the history that comes with uh, uh, endurance racing in Europe and Asia. So I follow that really heavy. Um, but, yeah, it's all those years of, of doing club racing and from a racetrack brat to an old retired Turn seven corner worker at Blackhawk. And in the meantime, you were uh, working at Gateway for uh, many years there. Sounds like you were high up at Gateway. So what was what was uh, that facility like? Um, so that's, that's the other thing about my experience in racing is uh, I love all motorsports. Um, but uh, even more so, uh, I have a I build a relationship with every facility that I go to. And to go as far as to say, even when I do the Petit Le Mans and I'm actually inside for five days, I don't leave. And as many times as I've been to Daytona, I've never been to the beach. Yeah. When I, when I get there, I get inside and I don't leave because each facility has its own heartbeat. It has its own personality and, the reasons why it's a piece of shit and the reasons why it's some of the best things ever happened here. But uh, Gateway, um, 
was kind of a weird thing for me in that uh, it used to be a 12-mile road course or a 12-corner road course that front way straightaway was shared with the drag strip. Um, and I put a million miles on it and I worked it from every possible angle um, and then went back to Fox River, uh, which I've, I've been at for 23 years or so. Um I've gone coming back and forth to Fox River over the last 25 years because of racing. But uh, when I started there as the operations director, um, I had to learn to love the new gateway. You know, it was, it, it was a, it's an A-shaped oval and a short one at that um, with a road course that had two major transitions. Um uh, when we first set up the road course, we used the banking uh, in turns three and four, uh, which was really a bad idea, but we really didn't have any other way to do it at the time. And we did, uh, some people did get hurt. Um, and then uh, when I became the operations director and I was talking to the NASCAR guys, they hated the fact that the pace car had to pull off the track so early it then lent itself to things getting disturbed before the green flag went. And so they wanted us to connect the, uh, the apron um, to let the uh, pace car come down. So anyway, because of that, we were able to put in this huge piece of asphalt. And instead of using the, uh, which Ed Bargy designed, believe it or not, he designed the, uh, the chicane part of it. So we bolted down these curbs so that you could take the apron and uh, be a lot safer. Um, after that, we never had anybody hit the wall again. That's good. Now, we had, uh, six of the massive airbags every bloody race weekend, which was a nightmare, <laughs> um, and take them back down and then repair them. And we, I think we had uh, like 17 of the large air fences. Like the 28 and, footers? Yes. In-house we had those and we maintained them as a club. In, in any case, um, it just really changed things for us then. Um, and it was still kind of a concrete racetrack, but in all of those locations we had sections of air fence and then the front of the air fence and the, and the end of the air fence we had straw, bar straw bales where they needed to be. Uh, MCRA had their own tractor trailer or a trailer full of straw bales that we bagged every year and took care of. And you had to bag them or else they go rotten, you know. So, um, and because we were a club, you would get 30 people or 40 people to help most of the time. <laughs> um, and then you have these air fence parties. Uh, later on down, you know, in the off season, especially where you blow them all up and you repair them and stuff. Um, but uh, that's what changed us, uh, changed things for us, Gateway. But um, I remember my first event uh, and actually how I got hired. They just asked me to come over um, to uh, help park the motor coaches for the teams because the person that striped it out down the road course that's where they put all the motor coaches for teams 
Um, they did factor in the corners. They kept doing these 16-foot spaces, but around the corners, you know, they start banging. <laughs> so I went over there and helped fix that. It was real cool. Al Andrew Jr. was there and Rick Mears and and these all oh, these really cool people. And we're all standing around in a circle trying to figure out how we now redo all this so everybody fits. Um and we sorted it out and they uh, passed along some good words to Chris Pook from the Long Beach Grand Prix Association, uh, who I knew years ago, but um, they asked me to do what was called crossover control. Um, and so I was sitting with race control on an Indy car, or it was a cart weekend. Um, and uh, Chris Pook comes walking in the room, hey, probes, I haven't seen you in years. And, I was like, yeah, man, you'd see me all the time if you hired me here, you know. <laughs> uh, the very next day, um, I get up to crossover control, and they're like, hey, man, they need to see you down in the main office. So I went down there, and this is the first day of the weekend. And uh, they said, uh, Chris Pook walks me in the conference room with all the, the brass was in there and everything. They're like, this is Jim Probst, and he's going to do our – Joint Operations Center this weekend. I still had no idea what the hell was going on. And he hands me what they call a minute by minute. It tells you exactly, like literally minute by minute, this is supposed to happen, whether it's parking or security or state police or whatever. Um, so luckily I had one of those and it all went really well. So uh, <laughs> all of a sudden they hire me to be the operations director, unbeknownst to the to the locals, even the general manager of the racetrack. And, um, so that's how it got started for me at Gateway. But I did truly learn to love the facility, the heartbeat, because the uh, the racers and the families and the track brats, uh, they give you hell all the time. You learn to really love them. And, uh, and you love the facility then. And you can just make it work. Whatever shitty about the facility, you make it work, you know? Heck yeah. And it sounds like uh, they have a little bit of everything. Sounds like they do the drag strip. They do the oval with, with um, the stock cars. They do motorcycles and carts and maybe some open wheel stuff. So it's like, what more do you need? Maybe some off-road, a supermoto track, maybe supermoto section. Right. Well, that's a funny story. So uh, uh, one year I had just mentioned – since we have all this stuff, let's do a multi-event motorcycle weekend. Motorcycle drag race and build a dirt track on the infield, a motocross track, and run the road racing at the same time. <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, it's great, it's great. And I was able to say that because I knew my general manager would say, what are you, out of your mind? <laughs> you can't do that. You bring in truckloads of dirt and stuff. But... um Whenever I pitched it, the general manager said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So here you have uh, marketing people and PR people that work full-time for the racetrack. They're running wide open. People think during the off-season, eh, nothing goes on at the racetrack. These people run wide open every day for these NASCAR events and our NHRA and all that. Oh, it's a full-time job. The last thing they wanted to hear was, now we're going to put on Cycle Fest here. Uh, with a three ring circus and we got to sell it, you know, <laughs> we got a market to think I had the enemies of the state all over the top of me. People that were friends were like, how could you do this to me? 
But um, we we threw it together. We had um, uh, the biggest problem with it was you had three different organizations. They all were used to a certain gate fee. You know, where it gets twenty bucks or thirty bucks ahead to come in the door, and drag racer families don't pay anything. So it all got a little convoluted, and we had shitty weather. And uh, the dirt track would get too dry, and it would blow across the road course. But this guy put together Cycle Fest, which we end up calling Cycle Flop a few years uh, later after that. Um, Didn't but, go to uh, plan. Right. But the other cool thing I did was um, we have Musco lights all the way around for the NASCAR stuff. You know, it doesn't necessarily light up the road course real well. But we had a we're a six hour weekend coming up that we started planning early in the year. And um, one of their national weekends, you know, Team Suzuki, everybody there. Um, and Ed Bargy was the race director for the region. Well, I had gotten the portable lights ahead of the NASCAR truck weekend. So we slipped on the lights and um, and put out these portable light stands and ran a six-hour endurance race primarily at night uh, right there at Gateway. And it's never happened again But because uh, I did leave shortly after that. But that was one of my cool things that happened there. Proud of. And that's in uh, – is that in Madison? Yeah, it's Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, everybody knows it as East St. Louis. And the hardest part, you know, we've got uh, 350,000 people in St. Louis proper and then another million in St. Louis County. But we can't get them to cross the river to save our lives, right? Is uh, it that big of a river, really? There's no bridges? Especially <laughs> East St. Louis, man. So... Um, that was always our pain in the ass. Plus, we had really shitty parking. Mm. Uh, we had no parking on site. The only land they owned was the racetrack, you know, so they had to beg and borrow. And, you had to bus everybody in? Uh, to some degree, we did a lot of busing, yeah, Okay. on major events. Yeah, that's uh, it's unique for a, a race facility to have that many disciplines available. I think that's really special. Um, how many of those are there in the country that, that have that many disciplines available? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, yep. I think one of my first events that I operated as a race director was actually called the, it was a Viper club that Dodge Viper had at the time was, was a hip happening car and the whole, they did all disciplines. Uh, plus they did a, a kind of a, a solo two style event as well. So I'm standing on the uh, five floor tower that we have control tower sits at the oval and I can stand at the very top and watch everything going on at the same time. Yeah. And the lines to get everything from the lines rolling into the facility of spectators to uh, which class is running at the time and all that. I, I would direct an event from up there if I needed to. So, yeah, it was pretty cool way to operate the facility. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned IMSA before in the Petit Le Mans. You know, I want to thank you. You invited me to do that event with you one of these years. I just haven't, uh, you know, that's an unpaid event. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. I would love to put that on my resume. It's another organization to add to the list. But uh, maybe in the next year or two, I can I can scrape some money together and get down to uh, 
to uh, Road Atlanta to do that one because it's a beautiful racetrack. I've worked that track for for Moto America. Um, I worked at um, I forget the turn names. The the turn coming onto the main straightaway. I've worked uh, the turn uh, coming onto the main straightaway, and I think one more place. Um, but uh, I've raced there. I've I've done marshalling there, so it has a special place in my heart. And to do IMSA, which is like the pinnacle of of uh, car racing in this country for sports cars, uh, what an honor to be there and to be uh, flagging for it. Uh, what do you think about? Because you said you love endurance racing. Uh, how is that on you as a marshal fatigue wise? Because you're there not for 20, 30 minutes at a time. You're there for fucking six hours at 12 hours at a time. Right. Well, I don't work corners when I go to those events. Okay. Um, I can tell you that I know many people that do and, and they just, it's the best way for them to watch the race and enjoy it and be a part of it. Um, but yeah, you can do eight hour stints. You can do 10 hour stints. Um, uh, and it's, it's different from each crew to each crew. As you, like we were talking about, you do have a, a, a local group at Daytona that, that runs that 24 hour, but yeah, because partially because, of, I don't get paid for those events to pay for my expenses when I know IMSA can pay for my expenses, at least, but also, um, I've worked so many events at, at Road Atlanta as a corner worker. Um, Petit Le Mans, or an endurance race, has a certain European smell to it and feel to it and the sounds. And there's something about being in turn two and listening to those Porsche flats. You're in turn two, but you're hitting them here the hit fifth gear on the back straightaway, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and another reason why I resist the uh, the new technology uh, hybrid vehicles is I can't hear them from turn two while they're in turn six at, at Road Atlanta. But anyway, um, plus you know they let you in on Wednesday, and if you got a camper and you got a scooter, that is some fun, man. Yeah. I mean, watch it from every single angle but at petite for the actual race itself the whole race i watch it from turn two so all those days i'm running all over the racetrack i'm watching the whole event i'm watching corner workers i'm criticizing how the facility's operating because i would do it so much better <laughs> yeah right than ever. um and then um but turn two at road atlanta for a spectator during that event four classes, the heavyweights really that much faster than the lightweights. Um, it's the only spot on the racetrack where almost every lap I go, oh, shit. <laughs> because of, for one thing, they're coming under the bridge at turn 11. From that point on, they're flat out. They, they let up a little bit coming in turn one. And if there's back markers, which there is constantly during the oh, race, yeah. they're trying to get them back markers before they drop into turn three. And it's the most impressive thing. And it happens lap after lap for 10 fucking hours. These guys are doing this every single lap. So you can't move me off that corner. You know, we, we like the yellow flags because we get to run over and make a PBJ or something. <laughs> 
run back to the station, you run back to your chair or whatever. Those four, full course yellows or the virtual safety cars even. And you know what? Um, when I was racing there in Wera Expert uh, many years ago, it was uh, we came up to some back markers in at like lap six or seven, you know, and the sprint races. And I remember distinctly there was a guy on the racing line being lapped and me and this other guy are battling for position. And so I'm like, neither of us are letting off. So it's like, okay, I got the ins. It was going up the inside of turn one and like uh, just going over the pit lane exit uh, lines on the pavement. I went up the inside of him, uh, nearly dragging my foot pegs in the grass. And the other guy went to the outside of him and we just split him like at, at breakneck speed. And I'm sure the guy shit himself how fast, how close and fast we passed him. But it was like, all right, that was successful. Now let's go back to battling. You know, <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, it is what it is at the time that it's happening, man. The timing of it is always critical on on lappers and and the leaders, man. But you know, again, that uh, the yellows uh, then relight the race for me. They do, you know, IMSA especially the the pace car will come out, and uh, and then they let each class pit. So even if it's a short yellow, they'll run through the whole let everybody pit. Then it's a full restart again. And what's cooler than a restart with 50 cars in it, you know, or 60 cars like they're going to have at Daytona this year. And then everybody's Uh, up to speed. They got a lot of practice laps in, so to speak, and they've already situated themselves based on their lap time. So that it's like a new qualifying session with hot tires, hot car, hot driver. He's all warmed up. Everything's ready to go, you know, but it seems like as a racer, it's we don't as a motorcycle racer we don't have virtual safety cars we don't have full course restarts it's like it's so different so like if i was a car driver i'd be like oh man i just lost my 10 second lead god damn it now i gotta start over i gotta do it all over again are you kidding me yeah that reminds me of of being a race director and that uh, you know in the rule book for years I, i think it's same across the board for amateur road racing but once you get over halfway, the race director can call the race. And so as a race director, I would always stand on the start line or close to it pace for the, you know, if it was an eight lapper, I would pace for four laps. After that, I'd walk off the pit lane and say, whatever happens next happens because uh, we don't have to restart and recalibrate and, uh, you know, the timing and scoring system and all that stuff, you got to reset. So yeah, and uh, it's it's a part of it. It's just something you gotta. It's part of the sport. You can't you can't just get rid of it. You know, I understand they still got forty laps left or whatever the time distance is. So it's yeah. like you got to finish it out. We had a we had. Uh, I think it's a good thing that they do that though. You don't have to red flag the race and completely restart. Um, it, it makes it easier for on the fans, and you can get started quicker than then going back into the pits and like restarting the cars and all that stuff. So I get it. I think it's, it's uh, just a, just a factor you got to get over and learn how to adapt to. For sure. I can only imagine. I think everybody goes through a point where they, uh, where they say, if I could go back in time with the knowledge I got now, I would have been an uh, endurance racer. I would also have been a jogger and all that. Stuff. <laughs> um I would have been an endurance racer because of that 
element that it, it provides. You can drive, for one thing, drive, 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 as compared to a sprint racer or a dirt track oval guy or whatever. You're driving for hours. Um, and then that element that changes everything. Here you are uh, fighting for fifth because you had a shitty start. Now you get another crack at it, or I've worked my way up to third. Now I got a crack at first or whatever. So, yeah, it's um, it just changes the game and keeps it interesting. Uh, I think it, it's uh, – sorry to interrupt. I think it's cool that, um, you know, you're not just driving the car. The car is constantly changing. The The conditions are constantly changing. So you might have X amount of kilos or pounds of, of fuel in your car, but by the end of the race, it, it's completely different. You might be – I don't know, 50 pounds difference or more, depending on the fuel tank size and your tires are degrading. So you might be losing ounces on your tires. But the big thing is your traction amount and like motorcycle racing. Man, I've seen go I've seen racers go down to the damn cords on their motorcycle, uh, the tires and still they, they come into the pits. They're like, yeah, I still had grip until the cords. And uh, it's it's just amazing how far you can push these machines. But you're always dealing with uh, temperatures changing. It's now nighttime. You got to put your lights on. So it's like tunnel vision, which I think maybe helps a little bit because you don't have all these distractions around you. You only got what's directly in front of you to focus on, but then you can't really look through the corner and see where you're, where you want to be like you would normally. So your vision changes, you know, all your reference points change. It's a, it's a tough challenge. So they turn their fastest laps at night. Um, and they talk about it really happens at Sebring um, because they can't see anything else. All you see is your reference markers, your targets that you're going for every single lap. That's what you're seeing. So you're hitting them as perfect as possible. Yeah. Uh, um, and of course, you know, you, you know, the, the, you can run a little bit cooler, which helps everything, but at night, but um, that's the main reason uh, listening to Sebastian Bourdais talk about it at, when they were running the Peugeot at Sebring, um, that was one of the things he alluded to was, I am not distracted by some goon on the side of the racetrack wearing a clown suit and a corner worker picking his nose. But here I am at night. I am hitting my marks perfect and going as fast as I can. So, And it, when I was road racing motorcycles, I hated sprint racing. I just wasn't a sprinter. I was an endurance guy. And I was always faster in the second half of my event or of my race, uh, or at least as fast as I was and nobody else was faster in the second half. But, um, and because as you know, especially, you know, um, back when I was racing, Awira was doing these two hour endurance races on Saturday, uh, which were like 60 bucks to enter or something. And when you went sprint racing, you spent 150, which is light compared to what it is now. Yeah, you spent a uh, you know 75 bucks for an eight lap sprint, or you know, was, I'm sure it was a little cheaper than that. But still, it was just an eight lap sprint. I'm just getting started, you right? Know? Um, and it's like only- ten minutes, twenty minutes, maybe. Yeah, and my favorite races, the ones that I actually won at and had. Uh, good results on were always a long run. So I I wish uh not wish necessarily, but if I could go back, it would be be a car endurance guy, man. 
Yeah, one of my good buddies, Rick Lind, who I raced against uh, probably 50 to 70 times or more. Um, he's now not, he's said, I'm not doing any more sprints. I mean, he's only doing endurance races. And it's like, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, now, it's a little bit more expensive as far as the bike setup or the car setup, because for motorcycles, you have to have a, you don't have to, but to be competitive, you should have quick change set up for your, your wheels, you know, maybe a, a fuel dump for your fuel. Cause otherwise you're just taking way longer than it could be. So for those small components, it's a little bit more, but for the, for the feel and the riding portion of it, it's, it's no, it's a no brainer. You're getting at least two hours on the bike. Now they usually split it up and maybe have a couple different riders. So you might not be doing the full two hours in one stint. You might be doing 45 minutes, depending how on your fuel usage and fuel tank size and coming in and another guy's jumping on it, which then gives you a little bit break. Maybe if it's a four or six hour, you can get back on the bike a few times and they do a couple of tire changes. But um, then you get into, if you have a multiple rider team, it's like, okay, well, who are we setting this bike up for? Who owns the bike? Um, and then, you know, how much does that that owner want us to change their settings? Because it's it's a collaborative thing. You know, one what one setting might be for one guy is total shit for the next guy. And the third guy's like, yeah, I don't mind, whatever. I'll just ride it. Um, and, and you get a whole different... Um, you, you want like a middle ground, something that works for everybody might not be ideal for everybody, but um, allows you to ride it. Cause you're not going to be changing clip on positions or rear set positions on a pit stop. You know, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and you know, like anything else, if you've got a bunch of dough to dump into it, that's different. But if you're two guys that are regional racers, going after their own sprint or whatever they're using somebody's bike and if it's not yours now all of a sudden if you're riding it you are responsible now you <laughs> own that thing yeah down the road you're fixing it um you know so there is that that strange dynamic of endurance racing and um you know it, it can be expensive but you know just the track time just a pure uh open for two hours as fast as you want to go. And when we were doing the two hours uh, back then, we did, we did them solo. And uh, most people laugh when I tell a story, but I was on a 600 Katana. And back there, back then, they, it was production-based. You had production or superbike to choose from in the race. And I was production, and they let you put a K&M filter in it, uh, respring the front, and you could put a shock on the rear. But you had to use the Metzler uh comp k's i think they were called back then they were the shit at the time uh treaded tires so um i could do like the race that i my first race i ever won was in a two hour at the little talladega short racetrack um relatively easy on tires uh for a stock bike like that that's in alabama yeah it's a real short track you know it's a mile long you're uh, lap, my lap times were probably minute, uh, you know, 10 or 12 or something. The fast guys were doing minutes. Um, but, uh, because it was stock production, I could go an hour 40 without fuel. 
So while the, and it's a short track. So while my competition was switching riders and changing at the hour, I was able to get three laps on them. Heck yeah. That's a big jump. It's a big jump. And then they only have that much time to come and get me because they were no doubt faster. But uh, John Ulrich actually wrote up that the, uh, the report for that weekend and, uh, talked to, I was rhythm racing. You don't use your name on endurance racing. You know, you use a team name. Yeah. I was rhythm yeah. racing and they said something to the effect of rhythm racing. Uh, uh, I finished seventh overall in that race out of 23 or so. And, um, he said finishing seventh overall, uh, against mostly higher performance machines. He said, <laughs> Uh, no, he's throwing no shade, you know, Mr. Road Racing World.com. <laughs> right. Right. And this was back when, you know, Road Racing World was just, I don't even know if it had even gotten started. He wrote it for like the Southeastern Bike Week paper or whatever it was back then. But the funny thing about that race, too, my brother Dave was racing heavyweight um, in that same race. And him and Wes Cooley were fighting for third place overall the whole race. Um, and they both came around me at the what they call the bowl there. It's flat, 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 and then a bowl that turns you the opposite direction. A lot of camber. Yeah. But I went into it in the fast lane on the right side, and they had to come underneath me. So I had all the momentum. So when we stood up to come out of the corner, I came back alongside my brother, Dave. But it was the first race I ever won, too, you know. So after the race, I'm like, you <laughs> And uh, he's like, oh, you, sh you shouldn't be passing me like that. Uh, you should have just let me go. And I'm like, how do you think I won this race, man? I got to keep my momentum up, brother. I slow down a little bit, man. I'm, I'm in trouble. So that was a good one. Heck yeah, it's uh it's cool to uh to get one up on your friends, let alone family members. So what's it like yeah. race racing your brother? Um you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh it definitely got rough at times. Uh you know, uh, uh money was not uh easily uh had. So the old man he he hooked up my oldest brother Dave first, you know, he got the first race bike, and, you know, and he couldn't necessarily do that for the rest of his sons. Um, so Dave got a really big head start and he was a, still is a phenomenal uh, rider. Uh, but um, I kind of leaned more towards, uh, I have 1 million miles uh, through the woods. Uh, I used to be uh I never raced much in the woods and I, I didn't like racing in the woods because of how I rode. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, this feeling and how it relates to my endurance racing was you get into the groove and you're not thinking about what you're doing necessarily. You're comfortable. You're thinking about shit that happened at work or, uh, why the girlfriend isn't doing what she's doing and stuff, but you're really honking along, you know, and that's what I love about woods riding. Um, and we're lucky here in St. Louis to have a, a huge off-road state park um, that has marked trails and an outer trail. And 
And uh, back then, you know, in my youth, especially, I could do 40 miles and um, in the same area without any restless fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you're at pace, you know, once you're going, what you think is your max, still having some some safety margins and not going at least not going 100 percent, but you're maybe at 90, 95 you feel comfortable, you're safe doing that pace you that you want to do. I find I have to tell myself, okay, let's not try new things right now. You're, you're just hitting your marks is to keep doing what you're doing. Don't be stupid. Try not to do, try not to find that another 10th because at a certain point you're like, okay, we got to bring it home. This is a race. It's not qualifying. It's not a video game. There's no reset button. So like sometimes, yeah, maybe I could have find that, 10th or two but at the same time i want to come home with a shiny bike and i want points today so it's like always this always this yin and yang of like yeah maybe i could have found another 10th but was it worth it trying because last time i did that i fell on my head right yeah it sounds like turn one at the old indianapolis raceway park (laughs) every day even though i would go really fast through there uh, every time I went through there, I'd be like, man, I know I could have gone even faster, but it's either that or you end up on your ass sometimes. Yep. It's, uh, you know, saving it for the next time, trying to come home with some good data and uh, living to fight another day. That's for sure. Yeah, I've had to make those uh, decisions a few times for sure. And sometimes I wish I had made that decision. Yeah. You never know until you push for it, but um, you just got to listen to what the tires are telling you, to what the machine is giving you feedback for. Like, is it over the limit? Are you overdriving or overriding the car or or the bike? Um, Because I think sometimes people push too hard. And if they're more relaxed, more, you know, they're trying to break too hard in the corner, which is sacrificing their drive, which is ruining the whole racetrack. Uh, they're, They're getting the philosophy wrong. You really need to to get on the gas sooner than anybody else, so you can go faster than anybody else coming up to the braking zone. But it's it's hard to teach that. Yeah, yeah, you really have to go through it. It's one of those things where you really just you really track time is everything, and even when you're not on the racetrack, uh, being propelled forward by a pumping motor and a chain driving the rear end, uh, one way or another, if you're if you're able to run around in circles on an XR100, uh, it's better than uh, sitting idle until the next race, for sure. Uh, it teaches you that stuff. You know. um, but IRP, again, you know, Indianapolis Raceway Park in a two-hour endurance race, I come out of the pits. And uh, Kurt Hall, who was really fast, a Team Suzuki guy then, um came by me as we're both going into turn one. He was on the straightaway already. And I had already been in the groove, you know, um, and uh, was settled into how I corner. So if it messes you up, it's usually that's something that throws you off your regular routine of that corner, of that braking sequence, whatever. And... Um, and he came out of the pits going slower than I expected. Um, and I came underneath him uh, after 
I was in the groove and I could feel my my front end just turn in to scrub speed and turn two there, which is really fast corner. And um, I showed him a wheel because you want to keep that momentum up. You don't want to change what you do from lap to lap to lap for traffic or anything else. So, um, you know, balancing that um, is the tough part, especially in endurance race when you have traffic every lap. And I think it's tough too to say, oh, I'm getting passed by the leaders. Um, let's not try to follow this guy because I'm not going to be able to do those lines. I'm not going to be able to break where he's breaking. Although it's like, oh, my heart hurts. Like I wanted, I want to be there with him, but uh, maybe it's lap 35 and you know, you got some used tires and your rear slipping a lot, a little bit. And it's like, oh man, I wish I could stay with that guy, but I'm, I'm going to let him go. He could do it his own thing. And I'm just going to keep doing my own thing and uh, bring it home. Nothing to it, man. <laughs> Just do it that way. Um, I was out at that uh, trail riding with my nephew, Ben, who ended up being a really stellar road racer and tuner. Um, when In his youth, we were riding. And I remember coming out of this corner going, you know, you should slow down. Because he's probably going to try to keep up with you. And, um, sure enough, I didn't, you know. And so I turned around and didn't see him and went back for him and he snapped his wrist and he was ah. trying to keep man here, you know? So you got to know when to say when, and uh, it is tough to let somebody go sometime <laughs> in the interest of getting to the end of the race. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if I should say this, but I've had a couple of people try to follow me and get hurt doing so. Um, because I even, I even gave a, a preamble beforehand, like, Hey, look, I might be faster than you. But don't try to keep up. Like if I will look behind me every 20 or 30 seconds and make sure you're in a good place. And if you're not, I'll slow down and um, and we'll get back to our ride. Uh, right. One was motorcycles and one was mountain bikes. And uh, the motorcycle one, this guy was a 20 year motorcycle cop. I'm like, he knows what he's doing, right? He's been riding um, for a job for a, for longer than I've been riding. Uh, right. But he had he had never done any track days. It was always street riding, um, and so we were at the Deals Gap in Tennessee, and uh, and it was my first time ever there. And I happened to just look in my mirror, and I saw him go off the road, bounce off the mountain, and come back onto the road in my in my rearview mirror. I was like, "Oh no, that's not good." You know, got to loop back around. I mean, he was fine, but his bike was all all torn up. And another one. It was actually a girlfriend of mine, mountain biking. I said, look, we had done a couple of mountain bike rides and she was she was good. I took her to the beginner trail. She did great. I took her to the intermediate trail. She did great. I took her to a advanced trail and we were like two miles in. And I said, look, you can get hurt on this trail. Just take it easy and go slow and we'll meet up every couple, you know, hundred feet or so. And uh, she ended up falling over and uh, breaking her collarbone i was like oh god damn it like that was probably my fault i don't know maybe we should have stayed at the intermediate trail for another couple of rides yeah i would torture people with it before i have i guess uh especially dirt riding if if i got with somebody that i never rode with before i would always say just when it comes to the floor in the trail just wait for me there yeah 
Yeah, for sure. You got to like have a, a meeting point, but if they don't know where to meet, it's like, it's tough. Where my point was though, was wait for me there because I'm going to be slower than you. So when you first meet somebody like that, you don't sell yourself too high. You know what I mean? And then when you take off, then they're trying to keep up with you. So yeah. Tactics. It's a learning experience. It's a learning curve, but, uh, Man, I've learned a lot. I've become a coach for a bunch of organizations uh, recently in the last p- uh, year or two. And uh, it's just a, a learning experience. And now you're trying to professionally teach people. Um, I'm doing MSF, Motorcycle Safety Foundation, for people getting their license to ride on the street, uh, just doing parking lot speeds, not really getting out of second gear, um, doing STT, Sport Bike Track Time, uh, USMCA, which is United States Motorcycle Coaching Association. Um, I will be starting in February or March, California Superbike School. Um, they travel the country, about 10 states, I think, this year or next year. And then uh, the latest thing is uh, I'm going to be a oh, – it's about 90% sure, but um, Speed Vegas Exotics Racing, which is uh, car – driving experience coaching. So um, doing cars and motorcycles at the racetrack. I'm super, I'm super stoked um, to be behind the wheel of starting off the Porsche, uh, Nissan and uh, Aston Martin, but we'll be getting into Ferrari, Lamborghini. Um, they do Mercedes and Acura, although Acura is in the shop right now, but like 10 different car brands. And uh, I should be on a BMW S1000 RR 2023 next year for uh, California Superbike School. So, uh, and hopefully in 28 days, uh, today is uh, December 15th, 2022. So um, my lease should be up January 12th and I'll be moving to Vegas and doing exotics racing as a full-time job um, 364 days a year. And then California Superbike will be doing that, I think, about 70 or 80 days um, in 2023. Uh, in Kentucky, they do uh, Virginia and Pittsburgh and Alabama. They go to uh, Washington State and California. They have a couple tracks in Las Vegas. So it's like this is a freaking dream job. Two dream jobs. Um the only thing that's pending is like, I got to just fill out my forms for onboarding for, for the speed Vegas. And then there's like three months worth of uh, homework for California Superbike school. Like, like I've been in this industry for over a decade, but I still got to like pass all of their homework assignments with a hundred percent accuracy. So I'm like a month or two into that. And um, you know, each organization wants you to teach a specific way. Like they have their own philosophies and their own things that they want you to teach you. Like you can't start talking about level three until you get the student through level one and level two. So don't even mention any of this stuff until we get there. Like um, you just have a specific pattern, you know, that you got to follow. Well, um, on one hand, I'm jealous. On another, uh, like you have no intentions of getting married and starting a family. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, but how cool is that, man? Good for you. Uh, do it while you can, brother. For um, sure. Maybe I'll meet a, you know, I really want to, um, to be somewhere Southwest because the weather is better. You, you can ride a lot longer throughout the year. 
But also, you know, I'm looking for a spicy Latina woman who speaks Spanish um, because I like to practice my Spanish. And, you know, when you go down to like Las Vegas or California, it's like a couple hours from California. They all speak Spanish when you just go into a random restaurant. So it's like I get to get better at my languages. Well, it's funny. It's the same thing in Chicago. Is it? <laughs> I'm shocked when I go up about their uh, Spanish-speaking American population. Uh, and uh, that's great, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, uh, I worked an event at the uh, Vegas Speedway there. Uh, it was a drag racing event. Um, I spent five bucks on the slots the day before, and I found five bucks on the uh, ground at the racetrack the next day. So Perfect. And, it just taught me again, man. Once you get to the racetrack, don't leave. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not too much of a slot player, although. Um, so I went to Vegas twice now in the last uh, couple of months. I went once for the initial interview, the just one day and a you know couple of nights of sleeping there, um, and then they offered me the job. So then I went back uh, late November to early early December for a week. I did a week trial run. It's like, I want to just test this out before I move 2,000 miles across the country. So uh, I went over there and uh, everything went well. I think I taught or coached 46 students in seven days and uh, everything went well. I didn't have any incidents with the car or with the students, you know, and you're going with this is not a racing school. This is like they call it a driving experience, uh, which means. You might pay $250 for the entry-level car, which gets you five laps. So you have like a 15, 20-minute debriefing session in the classroom where they have a quick video and they people ask questions, um, but probably not, not more than a half hour. And then you get me. I'm your coach today. Let's put on a helmet. And I get, uh, you know, 60 seconds walking to the car, talking to you, and then we're supposed to do a two to three minute briefing in the car and then we're going, all right, let's go on the racetrack now up to, I think maybe 140 miles an hour. They have their own private racetrack. They used to do Las Vegas motor speedway. Um, but now they have their own private racetrack. It's called, you know, speed Vegas exotics racing. It's South Vegas. And, uh, it's like a 1.3 mile track. The straightaway, like I said, isn't that long. It's maybe 140. I, 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 be shocked if you hit 150, but still pretty fast. You're doing triple digits. And so I'm the guy in the passenger seat coaching the person driving how to do it. So only thing I have access to is I can grab, I'm allowed and they want us to grab the wheel. If something happens, I'm supposed to fix the slide. If something happens, I have a, I do have a brake pedal in each car so I can apply oh. the brake and stop a slide that way. But there might be up to 15 cars on a 1.3 mile racetrack with basically beginner amateur drivers. I mean, you have anywhere from like Jamie Foxx was there. You got major sports stars and celebrities who come there all the time, but it's, it's generally like, like your mom going to this event with her family and her kid might drive. He's, he's got his driver's license. He's 18. He can drive, right? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go. And so you get all sorts of levels of people who, just maybe want to drive a Ferrari and they've getting their dream car. Or maybe it's the guy who has done SCCA events and he's like, I know what I'm doing. Or one guy was a NASCAR pit crew member for like 20 years, 
but he hasn't been behind a race car in, in 10 years. So it's like all these different levels of people. And uh, our thing is just like what I my, part of my spiel is let's have fun. My goal is for you to have fun, to go fast, but also cannot spin the car. We're not going to get in any accidents. You cannot leave the racetrack. All four tires must stay on the track at all times. You know, let's have fun. Let's go fast. Let's, you know, let's try to have fun here. We're, this is what we're doing. But, but then you get some people who are just super timid and don't don't want to get go fast. And now we're getting passed like six times, seven times a lap. And right. it's like now we're just focused on not getting in an accident because right. he's not even taking the lines. I'm like and we had a group of uh, foreign businessmen uh, who come in. We get like big parties, um, like corporate events, we call them. So they might buy out like 30 places for this particular time slot. And they don't speak English. They, they speak like no English. So how am I supposed to coach you around a racetrack when you speak Japanese and I don't speak a lick of it? Right. So like I'm just using hand signals and pointing like get over there. Go, go that way. No. That's hilarious. So it's uh, it, it's a little stressful, to be honest. Um but at the same time, I get to drive all these super fancy sports cars and uh, be in that environment. It's like there's not too many places around the country that do this. And just being connected to to another form of things you love to do and the people that own that situation. Who knows what could happen for you? Just being connected to a group like that. Um, and I imagine they would want kind of a short straightaway. <laughs> Yeah, you know they actually recently changed changed the uh, the racetrack before I got there. They used to have like a, a a pretty wide sweeping corner, and I guess they changed it because everybody was going off there. Uh, so they, they don't really have any high speed corners. It's like kind of stop and go and a lot of S's. Um, right. Because when you get those like hard braking zones into a into a tricky corner, you tend to spin the car. Um, right. And that's one the biggest problem I found was the brakes are so damn powerful that when people start to turn in while they have braking pressure on a Porsche, even a GT4, um, that's a recipe for spinning the car. And, yeah. and one of the guys in, I think it was a Lamborghini, maybe the Huracan, um, did spin the car when I was there. I, I, luckily, I wasn't the coach of that car. We were passing that car as he spun, but I was like, oh, man, like you get points against you as a coach if you have any spins or any offs or any damage to the car. So it's like, it's like I said, it's a little stressful. And like, how do I manage this person's expectations? We are not about to set some lap records out here today. We're, we're just trying to keep the car safe and keep my job safe. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, it's um, like I say, I'm glad you have the time for it. Um, Richard Petty driving experience used to be at Gateway. And when I was an uh, operations guy there, you know, the drivers all day or the coaches or whatever, sometimes you're driving somebody, sometimes you're being driven. So by the end of the day, they want to run the car, you know, because they have to stay in these um inside the lines whenever you you have somebody you're riding along with and so at the end of the day they got to play a little bit and they asked me if i wanted a ride i'm like sure i'll take a ride 
Um, and the first time we were going into turn one, I reached over and grabbed his arm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> been racing for years and done stupid shit in cars and bikes. and But I did not think we were going to make it through turns one and two. <laughs> and I reached over and grabbed him. <laughs> like it's the first, not the first time it's happened. Because he was going WFO and much faster than he would have been with anybody else, you know. So, uh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's um, so they do something cool, I think is really important. They do something called uh, discovery laps. So they'll take you out after the classroom session and do, um, I'm not sure the number, but maybe three or four laps. They do a couple laps at a slow pace just to get you acclimated with the racing surface and mm -hmm. which way the track goes. And then they, they kick it up a uh, two not two notches on the next two laps and they go nearly probably 95%. They're not going hundred percent. They're keeping some margin there, but they're doing it in a SUV. It's a Porsche Marcon or Porsche uh, Marcon. So it's like, it's like a, you would never think this car could do that. And oh, then yeah. you get a professional driver who's been at that racetrack for 14 years behind the wheel. And he's like, you guys ready to go? Like, <laughs> it's amazing. And one of the yeah. guys told me, he said, you would not believe how many Porsche, Porsche Marcons we've sold based on just these discovery laps. And we don't sell cars, but like people will come back and say, you know what? I bought that, that car because you, because of those laps that we did. And then yeah. it's like, even, it's surprising to me because, you know, I have most of my experiences with two wheels. So I'm really trying to bridge the gap into four wheels. And this is a such a great opportunity to do that. I have a lot of karting experience and I've done some track days and autocross, but not a ton on, on the racetrack with cars so far. Um, and so you do these discovery laps and then you get behind the wheel and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to do that. Holy shit. You know, like, I don't know if I could do that. But yeah, it's just uh, the amount of grip that you really have with these Michelin tires is uh, is just phenomenal. It's like you well, can go yeah. you can go way deeper into the corner than you ever expected. Yeah, I've never driven the Porsche my car, but when I see them, they've got some huge ass fat tires front and rear on those things. So I've always wanted to drive them because they're race cars in an SUV package, you know. Pretty much. But, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. That's very cool. I'm Hell glad yeah. you get it. Yeah, man. It's uh it's just a, a little nerve-wracking because I've never moved uh halfway. It's more than halfway. I've never moved across the country before. And so it, my biggest thing is like, what do I do with all my shit now? Like uh yeah. I don't it's expensive to live in Vegas, uh, way more than than uh suburbs of Michigan, Metro Detroit. So it's like, oh. okay, what do I what do I need to get rid of? What do I need to cut? What's the fat here? Because I won't have a garage, probably. I, I don't have an attic or a basement. And uh, I'm so probably going to be in like a one-bedroom apartment. So um, I just got to slash all the fat. No, I got the solution for you. Um, it's a truck and a toy hauler. And um, you can live in the desert for free. Um, you just need a good generator and solar power and uh, one of my good friends actually jumped in his uh, truck and trailer and hauls around his dirt bike and uh, works out of his camper uh, for for a living because uh, he's a I don't know a computer engineer of some sort or 
But uh, yeah, out there, that's the place to do it, man. Get yourself a cool uh, truck and trailer, and it gets cold at night, but um, that's what heaters are for. And um, I would be totally jealous to do that. So then you got your shop, you know, got your toy hauler. Your bikes can go in there. Your tools can go in there. You can drag them out when it's time to put it up on the stand and work on it and stuff. It's a bit of a mobile garage. Exactly. Yeah, I've really thought about that, to be honest. Do the the van life, so to speak. You know, even even like uh, I probably wouldn't be able to do it as luxury luxurious as that. But like a maybe a van with a, a small trailer would would kind of do the same type of thing um but uh man i gotta tell you 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 remember my blue truck right that i that i brought to uh brought to blackhawk a few times i had a 2010 chevy colorado and uh the thing just died so i lost my truck i had uh the timing belt went and then the engine became an interference engine very quickly after that and so it was basically totaled so uh I'm driving a, a four-door sedan now. It's like a 2012 Toyota Corolla, which I got a steal of a deal on. But it's like, man, this is the first time in a decade I haven't had a truck. And I feel like uh, I've lost some of my manhood from not having a truck. It's like, God damn it. I wasn't done driving that truck, man. I only had like 160,000 miles on it. But uh, I guess I didn't drive it uh politely i i i uh i was hard on that truck yeah yeah and those uh it was a gm six cylinder you said i think it was a it was not that strong of a truck maybe of a four cylinder um if it was a four cylinder then you know you're asking for it with the gm but um that is the tough part about racing or traveling to be a corner marshal whatever um, I do have a Duramax diesel and I have a 30 foot camper and, uh, and it's all because I went, what I went through in my youth at the racetrack of sleeping in tents and not being able to get my bike, uh, across the country because, uh, all I had at the time was a little Volkswagen or something. Um, yeah, I won't trade it for anything now. Yeah. It's so nice to have, to have like. I plan on dropping a few things off at my parents' house, but like I need to rent a truck now to do that because I can't can't put a couch or like a file cabinet or anything in this vehicle other than a, like a bag or a box. So it it just makes things more difficult. Yeah, get some of your racing buddies that owe you a favor. <laughs> Have them help it out. Yeah, for sure. I, so I plan on getting like a budget truck and getting one of those those uh, two wheel trailers for my for the car. And then maybe getting a hitch on the on the sedan and towing my trailer, like doing a dual tow. Or, or is that the way you say it? Like towing? Yeah, your a, third unit dual yeah. tow. But I don't know. How, do you think that it would work if if I have two wheels up, so it's kind of on a slant, and then I have a trailer towing behind that? Would that work with that angle? Uh, it might. Um, yeah, I would fear other things. Like what? With that plan. <laughs> if you're running a four-cylinder Corolla. Um, well, the Corolla won't be actually driving. I'll be towing it with a truck. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, you would probably be okay. Uh, and it's funny that doing something like that is not against the law. 
Yeah, I looked it up. It, um, there's a. I don't. I didn't look at every single state I possibly passed through, but I just looked up: is dual towing legal in these in in uh, states of the country? And it gave me like this huge list of. It's like most of the states you can do that. Yeah, it's more about length. Okay, so it's my so, my trailer is like an open Harbor Freight trailer I built myself, and actually. It's one of those that can fold in half. And my dad's like, why don't you just fold it in half and put it in the damn truck? I'm like, I guess I could, but it takes up another bunch of feet and I've never folded it in half. So I was, I was worried cause I've mounted a whole bunch of things to the, to the trailer. So I'd have to take those off. It'd be a whole right. pain in the butt. Sounds like it would be, but uh, you gotta do what you gotta do, man. And if you're, running around in Ferraris and Porsches and stuff. Uh, I think I'd figure out a way, no doubt it's, about it's, it. It's worth it, man. Um, so enough about me. Uh, what's on your mind? Is there anything you want to talk about today we haven't covered? Um, I did. Whenever I uh, knew I was doing this, I grabbed my old briefcase and had some cool shit in it. Um, like that uh Groton picture I had and then there's my 1992 invite to the road Atlanta for the we're our grand national finals now they do it at Barber I know yeah but I killed it that year and uh I went down to road Atlanta for the finals and got my ass handed to me man <laughs> I was like 15th or something in my class after being out front all year Hey, well, that's not too bad. I mean, 15th in the country, the Grand National Finals ain't nothing bad. Yeah. Again, it was production-based stuff, and it was the old road Atlanta with the cavity. The gravity cavity? Yeah. So, um, you know, even for a seasoned rider, you know, it's it's really kind of intimidating, um, especially, you know, the cavity would point you straight at the wall, and if you got your line just right, just as soon as you come out from under the bridge or you, you start hitting the bridge, but even before you go under it, all you see is blue sky. You don't see any kind of earthly anything. Yeah. All the sky and you just have to keep yourself to stay in it. And there was no endurance race that weekend. They were no doubt uh, eight lap sprints or something. So I never got the time to really get rolling there and get comfortable, especially through that section. But uh, there's that. Um, and I would assume at uh, at that time, gravity cavity existed. You're you're not uh, using any air fences there. It's just a freaking cement wall if you get it wrong. Yeah. Uh, me and a bunch of guys from MCRA, uh, when I wasn't racing, we would go down to the Grand National Finals and we would work turn 11 there at the bridge and it, it got really bad a few times and um and for cars too you know um horrific uh scenes there for sure um we're so glad they changed it because it really did change it uh we haven't lost a life there since they did and um although when i was there we did lose a life andy really? white andy white died coming up the hill uh, not in that section. It was um, was a turn six or turn five, maybe that final left hander before the two right handers going on to the back straightaway. Um, they say he might have hit a false neutral and he hit that cement wall on the left hander, and was, uh, there was no fencing there. There's no no air fence at all. 
And so that was like uh, 2010, 2011. Probably 2013 or 14, I want to say. Okay, I remember that. Um, yeah. That's yeah, the last one I, that I know of. Right on. Yeah, well, that whole uh, bridge section uh, that the change there was was the best thing that ever happened. Um, some of the car guys didn't like it, but uh, uh, it really did make the difference there. So, yeah, I never raced it after that. Um, I was the first one to work the new uh, turn 10 section for motorcycles there. So that was pretty cool. I was going to work for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was the thing. You know, I grew up with Weira. I love those people. I still love uh, Evelyn and Sean. Um, and um, I know I'd be, you know, uh, welcome to any of their events moving forward. But uh, somebody else too that early on that I gained a whole lot of respect for was uh, John Ulrich because he was running Team Hammer before they were known to be anything here in St. Louis. Uh, he started the John Wu Project, uh, which was a racer that um, got paralyzed uh, be, uh, via guardrail. And ever since then, I mean, that was the 70s, I think. Ever since there, there's been no bigger uh, supporter of racetrack safety than John Ulrich. And, and nobody that has put more money into it and uh, to the safety of the sport. So um, he can be a wild man to stand there and talk to. Uh, <laughs> um, really interesting fella, but uh, there's, there's fewer people in the um, racing world that I have uh, any more respect for than somebody like that, especially John. And it's the uh, Road Racing World Action Fund. And every time I put a order in on Amazon, I have it selected that I support that fund. So a percentage of my sale gets donated to them every time. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people that would truly appreciate it. And, um, uh, it just so happened that, you know, that weird story about that. Uh, CCS used to run at Gateway and they were mainly responsible for getting our air fence there for Gateway. Um, but when they stopped racing there, they wanted to take their air fence. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're still racing here. And um, and I had known Kevin and, and Eric uh, Telcher before that, but they're like, this is our air fence. And I'm like, no, it's not, man. It's the Action Fund's air fence. And I called Ulrich and I said, hey, man, CCS is trying to take this air fence out of here. And we run four events here. There's no way we can run without this air fence. So he called them, then they called me saying, what in the fuck are you doing calling him trying to take our air fence? I'm like, sorry, man, but we need to keep it here. And uh, another situation where, uh, you know, John Ulrich uh, hooked us up in St. Louis with some safety. And, um, I do every chance I get. I, I try to support them one way or another. That's awesome. And I wanted to mention that um, did you hear about CCS's news recently? They got they sold Kevin and uh, Eric Kelsch, Kevin Elliott, Eric Kelsher sold uh, CCS to a new a new uh, party. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, everybody's wait and see kind of thing. I've never heard of the gentlemen's the gent to two guys that are uh, the owners. Uh, only the little bit that I've read, like everybody else. Uh, it's funny, man. You know, uh, the social media side of it, especially their Facebook page and stuff, is is just loaded full of questions. So I can imagine their position um, trying to take a somewhat, you have to admit, somewhat old school system of um, uh, registration and membership and rules for each class and trying to modernize that uh, cannot be the easiest thing to do. Uh, especially when you have thousands of motorcycle riders that are used to doing it the same way for the last, you know, however long he's had it for uh, Kevin Elliott had it for 20 years or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I will not rush to judgment on what happens next. Although they took our, our early Blackhawk round away. Ah, about that, our spring of our spring CCS isn't happening this year. Is that the May event? Yes. Yep, yeah, May event's not going to happen. <laughs> team challenge and a um, but Arm is coming back. All right, days, which is by far the best event at Blackhawk, including cars. I was planning on doing that event this year, uh, but it didn't work out. Um, I ended up doing uh, MSF course um, in my home state, so I didn't have to travel anywhere, and I made more money. But that was on my plan at the beginning of the year; it just didn't work out. Yeah, the um, we'll see what happens with CCS. I would really wish them well, um, but uh, you really, if you get any chance to come down for that arm event, it is so much fun. For one thing, they they fill the place. Where you were working in turn three the last time you were there, that whole area was stuffed full of racers all the way around that asphalt circle. And then it's so social. Uh, Friday night, there's they got a band and there's people having a good time. And then Saturday night, they have this huge uh, awards giveaway and everybody's together surrounding that whole uh, concession area, even outside. The inside's full, the outside's full. And if you're on a 1969 350 Honda single and there's four other guys with you, those guys got some game. <laughs> they are battling the whole time. And then they have the cool modern stuff. And what's cool for me is, is every once in a while I go, hey, man, I know you from 20 years ago. And then, of course, the bikes. Hey, I used to ride one of those. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is the old bastards that are running the event, the old wear guys and the old CCS guys are old wear armor guys now. So Ed Bargy and, and uh, Sharon from Wera. So it's fun to catch up with all those people. And it is such a good event. Uh, I don't know how they do it uh, and still run it as a club. Do you think that the uh, Arma event is bigger than the CCS events now? Twice as big. Wow. As, you know, it goes twice as big. That's huge. So now I, I think um, see Blackhawk wants them back, of course. It's it's really good business for them. So they I think they give them Thursday of race week for 
just give it to them and so they can run a, a, a practice day on Thursday and practice day on Friday and, uh, and then kill it all weekend. And I, I really think they're coming back for the third time in a row because uh, largely due to uh, the crew. That's good. It's good to see that uh, you can bring so many people to uh, a vintage race. Yeah, and I think it's a real draw for any racing organization to uh, pick a small track like that that you have to you have a crossover for to get across and open and close the gates. Very inconvenient, but I think it's attractive for these kinds of groups to come there because they're they turn the event over to your experienced staff and we run those events perfect uh we keep the cadence of the event going uh, we never run past 5 p.m um and it's all because i i really believe it's cars of our crew primarily uh, yeah but and it, and they're so efficient that uh they know a bike's coming off at turn turn seven and bikes are coming on track before that bike even comes off i'm like sometimes that could be a problem, right? What if we get a runner? But it, it doesn't happen very often. Well, and if you think about it, most of the time a runner, who cares? Yeah, he'll just what? come in next lap and he'll see all the other bikes and track like no, he's screwed up. Yeah, they're just safety wise, it's it's really not a huge deal. It's where I have a problem with is uh is when we put a safety truck on the racetrack uh without clearing the track. I'm okay with putting one out there when bikes are out there, but that means that all of us need to go EV flag. All of us do uh, whenever there's an emergency vehicle on the track and there's still traffic out here that hasn't cleared. And then we just waving all... yellow in that one corner where they have the EV. Yeah. Yep. Um, so sometimes we think we have last bike. And as you say, every once in a while you get a runner. Um, and we've seen it too. A start, a start will mess up the race. So he'll throw the white flag too early or too late or whatever. And, you know, things like that do happen. So you, you have to have those safeguards. And, and, and that's the difference between, one of the huge pain in the ass is about having different race control people for the same crew mm. um, is uh, if I'm doing race control, if that anything hits the racetrack other than a race vehicle, I'm going EV flag unless I can confirm that the last bike is in. Uh, not all race control people do that. You know, it was mind blowing to me that we have to clear the entire track every single time because I'm coming from like watching MotoGP and all these fancy racing organizations that, that just have like telemetry and they can tell you where each car or bike is around the racetrack. And they, we do have that technology. It's just expensive, right? So like the race control doesn't actually know where every bike is on the racetrack. We as marshals and corner workers tell race control uh, one is clear Two is clear, three is clear. Once it gets to the next station, you can't see it anymore, and it's at the next the next area. We clear it, but well, you know, yeah. my laps, my laps, lap timers have transponders now that tell you data like that. So I wonder in the next five or less years if we go to that system and everybody has those transponders, if if that practice would become obsolete. 
Well, if you're a real operations guy and you've seen it all, um, you will always want to run it as if you don't have a transponder system um, because uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to start a race and your system goes down, your whatever. you. And that's what I don't like about racetracks that have a camera for each corner and, and that corner broadcasted into the race control center because it then makes the race control person start telling you, oh, I see it. I Meaning I don't need any more information from you. But we all know that during one of these events, it's going to happen. Those fucking cameras are going to be down. The corner workers aren't going to know that the cameras are going to be down. You still need to go through the whole procedure of uh, being cool on the radio. Turn seven, waving yellow. <laughs> turn seven, waving yellow. Riders up, riders down. You need to still keep doing that for operational reasons for the thing that you know is going to happen eventually. Because how many times do you see it where um, rider one, two, three, uh, no transponder, flag them down, you know? And so, like, that's going to happen too with the other uh, transponder technology. It's just a matter of when. And so, you got a rider with a bad transponder on the track and he's not showing up on their on their radar that's right yep it's going to happen and and that's why formula one and all those guys even though they're using lights again and um they you still and as a driver or a rider if you have been doing it long enough you then start to rely on on where the flagman is every time i come to this corner uh, you start to rely on their blue flags. In fact, if the corner worker gets it wrong, which you've seen before on blue flags, especially, they get pretty fucking worked up. Corner worker, <laughs> what job? They didn't do that blue flag like they were supposed to. So you start taking that stuff away. I think we uh, kind of run into trouble a little bit or asking for trouble anyway. And now they're starting to implement in-car flagging systems, the light boards and things like that. I think that's great. Um, you know, it doesn't take away the flaggers. It just adds to the, the complexity a little bit, but it adds to the driver's safety because you're looking over here. You might not even be paying attention to the flagger. You're trying to fight for racing position. Maybe there's a car or a vehicle in your, in your way blocking that flag station and you didn't see the waving yellow. You really didn't. So having something like for motorcyclists, what if you had like a light system in your helmet that maybe didn't blind you, but it's like a heads up display type of thing on your visor would be very beneficial. But in cars, it's on their dashboard so they can see blue flag, whatever the condition is. There's a good story about that. And that is, um, so, you know, the, the newer modern cars on the mirrors, they have indicators when someone shows up on your left side. That got started in endurance racing when we started running rear cameras out of our cars and the main thing was these slower classes when they had these hyper cars coming up on them on the back straight of Le Mans, um that all of a sudden they see this little flasher go off that uh fast guy's coming up my ass right now so that's where that technology first got uh 
tuned in, if you will, before they started putting it on your everyday road car. So I didn't know that. Yeah, it makes absolute sense for us to do that uh, with motorcycles too. And I've always been curious, so, you know, why we haven't gotten into communication yet either. Uh, I know that it's a spooky thing at first, but I bet you we could uh, get used to that technology as a sport um, and be able to talk to the pits. I've talked to a bunch of guys about that, and I think everybody's in favor for it. Um, It sounds a little scary because we, like my initial thought is, you got too much going on. How are you going to be able to press a button at any time? But we, they already have a dozen buttons on their handlebars anyways um, right. for all these different fuel modes and mappings and all this stuff. So, like, we have the space to put another button. Um, and it would probably save some crashes, say, like, hey, look, there's a bad incident in turn three. Watch out for it. Um, or, like, hey, um, we can see, like, Josh Heron at the Daytona 200 ran out of fuel like, hey, you need to come in. Looks like you're running low on fuel. Don't go another lap. You would have saved saved his entire race. Maybe would have won the damn race. So, like, yeah. all these little things are, I think they're helpful. And, like, we have the technology. People are already using Bluetooth headsets 10 years ago. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why it's been lagging so much uh, in the motorsports, uh, for motorcycles specifically, because, um, you know, race car drivers do it already. Um, why can't motorcyclists? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is is a system like that is going to be uh, relatively expensive. I don't necessarily uh, think so because like you get one for like a hundred bucks. Yeah, an individual can do something like that to to have a system where race control can say caution turn seven, caution turn seven, um, for everyone to hear all at the same time or um, pace car coming out in two laps or pace car coming off the racetrack. I think that all has to include a whole system and probably why the pro bar guys will have a single radio provider like uh, uh, racing radios or whatever the organization is. They show up there. They provide everybody with the gear. Uh, because the, you need a single system that everybody uses. And then there's rules governing that, and it varies a little bit in cars. Like uh, one organization will say, you can't give the driver any um, a performance uh, information, like switch to mapping or uh, – or certain information they can't share with the driver to give you an unfair advantage or whatever. Uh, so that would be a similar thing in motorcycles. You would have to lay down a, a etiquette for operating within that system. So it, it is somewhat complicated, although not impossible, and perhaps uh, uh, an ambitious, uh, smart guy like yourself could develop a system and make a whole bunch of money on it heck yeah it's there's tons of opportunity technology is always changing i just saw yeah. helmets not long ago that have uh for motorcycle race race or riders um it's not approved yet for racing but they have a camera in the back of the helmet 
and there's like a little heads up display, small thing, transparent on your on your vision. It's like, holy shit, that's that would be so helpful. Like, yes, it's yes, it's a, a distraction. But if you see someone coming up behind you, you see he's trying to pass you on the outside or something. You could maybe change your line a little bit and prevent that pass from happening. Now, do you think that should be legal? Do you think like there's so many uh, it's a ball of wax like it's just information is information bad to keep your eye on what's going on in front of you without having to turn your head and look to see where this guy is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's um, somebody that's in your pits, that's talking to you, you know better than to check in on them while they're doing a head to head going into turn three, a black Hawk or whatever it is, you know, you would do want to try to catch somebody while they're on the straightaway or, uh, you know, you'll be smart about that. Um, I, I see no reason why we couldn't figure out a system of doing that and how it would really serve the sport uh, if we could. You know, track days too, you know, how many times would you like to talk to all the coaches on the track at the same time? Oh, yeah. Hey. Or even like as a – so the biggest thing I found uh, going from motorcycle coaching to car coaching is you're now – in the car you're in the same car as the student and if he fucks up you're fucked up with him and yeah. so like but but going to motorcycles like i have no communication with the other rider and i'm and this rider is making terrible mistakes and and we do like 20 minute sessions for track days and so it's like i don't want this rider riding for another 17 minutes riding like right. this he's gonna get hurt and so we can use hand signals and pull them into the pits, but we can't communicate at all with them. So if I were able to say like, okay, you're on channel one, you're on channel two, you're on three, four, five, and so on. And maybe there's an all button for my group yeah. of students. Cause I might be doing six or eight students at once. And if I could chirp into student seven and like, Hey, you gotta be way tighter on the exit of turn three there. Or you're going to go off the racetrack. Don't do that anymore. Like that might, correct the problem immediately rather than him making that same mistake for another 20 minutes, you know, like those things would be so valuable rather than taking them off the track, trying to not reprimand them, but like, you know, show him some better information. Um, it takes away from his riding time. Um, and he might, he might feel bad that I did that, you know, from take, taking them aside, that kind of thing. Yeah. So maybe if I'm a track organization or track day organization, I want to be the first one to say, uh, this fits into your helmet and it goes with the guy that's giving you personal one-on-one -on -one track time. And you guys will discuss it while you're out there. Uh, we won't ever call you in this section. We'll only call you on this section or whatever. That would be attractive to me for, uh, somebody that would participate in an event like that, having this unique one-on-one. -on -one. So there you go, man. There's your cell. It's groundbreaking. Like I, I don't know any motorcycle organization that does that. Uh, and I know oh. a lot of them. So like, I don't think it e even really exists yet. So it would be uh, the first Sell of it. many. Sell it. <laughs> Heck yeah. So if anybody has the technology, I mean, I had like a, uh, just a Bluetooth headset. You just call people. So we could have like a multi, the easiest way to do it is just a phone call with like eight different people, you know, and to just have the, uh, I think it was a chatterbox. So I had like something big sticking off the side of my helmet, which is not ideal, 
But I mean, that's the the easiest, cheapest way to do it. We could all get it done for like a hundred bucks a pop. I'm in. Let's go. I'm in. I will pay charge you a small fee for consulting <laughs> on the job. And uh, let's do it, man. And we got a record of it here right now today. So uh, we're coming up to two hours already, Jim. So I don't want to keep your time too much. Um, but uh, thank you so much for coming on talking to me. And are you online anywhere? Where can people find you or follow you on, on the Internet? Uh, I'm really old school, man. So I'm a Facebooker, uh, Jim Probst, and um, would love to talk to anybody about the stuff that I do. And uh, I can't I just had a really great time. And I'm glad I got to know you like I did. And hopefully uh, you and Jessica can hook up again someday and and make babies. <laughs> we'll sure. see about that one um but for sure man i uh i will hopefully be doing the vegas formula one round um and the streets there so it'll be an iconic race you know i'll hopefully already be in that city so i won't have to travel very far just take a day off of work or two and uh maybe another one for the recovery day but um you know i don't I don't know how much longer I'll be in Michigan, hopefully a month or so. So uh, I don't plan on being at Blackhawk uh, in the coming future right away. But I did forget my uh, anti-fatigue mat there. Um, so you're welcome to use that. Uh, just put a note on it for Eric Swan. So if you want it, man, it's all yours. I just happened to forget it and leave it on the ground, uh, but just recovered it. So, so yeah, she's, yeah. Uh, she's a cool person. I've been talking to her on social media a bit. And... Um, yeah. So, so thanks again. And I'll be sure to get this posted and edited. You know, I have actually 52 episodes out this year, one a week already. So I might save it and hold it for uh, early January. I haven't decided yet. Right. on. well, I hope you have a great holiday and uh, you're lucky like me, you've got a good family that loves you. And, um, and that's the best part of it. And uh, thanks for, inviting me to this. It's a really cool thing that you're doing and uh, having old Jim Probst on here after I just watched uh, Mr. Posh and, and uh, some other super really cool people in this industry uh, is humbling, but uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you about it. Absolutely. Uh, I love you, man. Uh, it's been great talking and uh, I'm sure I'll see you at the racetrack. Peace out, brother. Have a good one. Yeah.